So during this Advent season, uh, our theme that we have chosen is veiled. And what we mean by that is that our normal lives and even normal Christianity is in a sense veiled. Think about a bridal veil. A bridal veil uh, both reveals and conceals at the same time. Right? And through it we see dimly and we long for that day for the veil to be pulled back so that we might see in full. And that's what Advent is all about. It is waiting for the veil to be pulled back. And so we look back at Christ's birth, which promises us that God is at work saving us. We look back at his birth that shows us the eternal love and favor of God. But we also, during Advent, look forward with great anticipation that the one who was born will come again. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at God who came with a veiled glory. All right, God who came with a veiled glory. We see this as we look together at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The gospel of the Lord. Uh, let's pray now for the teaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, that you are a God who isn't hidden uh, nor silent, but a God who delights to be made known, and you have made yourself known in your coming, and you have made yourself known in your word. And so it is our prayer that as we study your word this morning, that you would accompany it, and that you would show us lovely things about yourself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, Jimmy Fallon and uh, U2, U2's a band, uh, they brought a little amplifier and a microphone and a couple guitars and some of those white sort of uh, plastic tubs down into the subway at 42nd and Central Avenue. And they went down into the subway and they're wearing beards, these fake beards, and they've got hats on. And uh, they start to sing some songs down in the subway, and the commuters are just kind of running back and forth. They're getting on to the subway cars. They're getting off the subway cars. They hear some singing. They look, and then they just keep rushing on about their business until 
Jimmy Fallon pulls off his beard and starts bouncing around like the maniac that Jimmy Fallon is. And he starts yelling, hey, guys, look, it's you, too. Hey, guys, look, it's you, too. And people begin to look. And as they start to look over at you, too, as they're singing the song Desire, uh, Bono and the Edge pull off their beards and they pull off their hats. They throw them on the ground and everybody begins to freak out. And the whole, like, subway system, like, is shut down. And people are running up to them. They're pulling their phones out and their video recording what they're seeing. Nobody gets on the subways as they're coming and going and everybody just sort of stops and they rejoice in what is happening before them, right? And they are taking these videos and they are showing the world, right? They are enjoying what you 2 and Bono are doing for them as they break in with their glory into their ordinary daily commute. Now, you can imagine uh, being there that morning Because uh, you can imagine standing on the platform like you do every day, waiting for your train to arrive, and then one day, uh, you too is kind of standing there, and they're playing, and they start to sing. And that would be amazing, right? I mean, you would put that on Instagram. Uh, You would Facebook about it. You might call friends about it. You would maybe tell your children and your grandchildren about it. Uh, But something even more amazing is happening uh, in the text that is before us, because what we have is not the glory of you 2 and Jimmy Fallon showing up on an ordinary commute day. What we have is the glory of God breaking into the ordinary lives of these shepherds. And so what I want us to think about this morning is that at Christmas, the glory of God breaks into the ordinary. At Christmas, the glory of God breaks into our ordinary lives. And so let's think about this in two ways. Let's begin by thinking about the ordinary, and then we'll think about the glory, right? That God's glory breaks into the ordinary. Now we'll reverse it, think about the ordinary, then move on to the glory. First, the ordinary. As most of you know, and what I would assume about your lives is that most of them are fairly ordinary. And that's one of the things that I think frustrates me the most about my life, uh, that it's just so ordinary. Uh, My friend Ben Bannister says it this way, that our lives are overwhelmingly underwhelming, (laughs) right? And, um, And I think for me, when I think about my life, what I really want is I want every day to be extraordinary, Right? And if you're like me, when you think about your life, you want every day to sort of be a top play on ESPN. But a top play on ESPN becomes a top play because something amazing actually breaks into the ordinariness of the game. And that's what's happening in our text, that God is breaking in to the ordinary activities of these shepherds. And you see it in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, this might seem obvious to all of you, but this was the first Christmas. And the first Christmas wasn't on any calendar, right? There were no Christmas trees with lights. There were no wreaths. There were no Christmas parties. There were no white elephant gift exchanges. There were no, uh, you know, preschool Christmas pageants. This thing just broke in. right? And the shepherds were out in their fields, and they were just doing what they normally do. 
And you can imagine they're probably at night, they're out there sitting maybe underneath a tree, leaning up against a tree together, and they're telling stories like you might do around a campfire. Maybe they're complaining about their spouses. Uh, Maybe they're complaining about their children. Maybe they're making fun of one another. Maybe they're just watching the sheep as they eat grass or as they lay down and take a nap. Or maybe they're scanning the horizon looking for wolves or other robbers. But really what they're doing is they're just doing their normal activities. They're living their ordinary lives until all of a sudden their normal lives weren't ordinary anymore because, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, could you imagine you're just sitting out there one night and boof, right? This angel begins to appear. I mean, that would be amazing, right? I haven't seen an angel. I'd love to see an angel. Uh, Maybe I have seen it. I don't know. But it would be amazing. Uh, But more than an angel appearing, which is the thing that often kind of catches our attention, the glory of the Lord shone around them. It was the glory of the Lord that lit up the sky. And it seems like what was happening is a little bit of heaven was opening up for them. And the light of heaven was breaking into the darkness of their normal lives. And often when we think about the scene, the the focal point of this scene, uh, even in our manger scenes and nativity sets, are often the angel and the choir of angels, which would be amazing. But we cannot miss the real show. Because the real show isn't that the angels lit up the sky. The real show is that the glory of the Lord shone all around them. Right, the glory of God is breaking into their normal lives. Now, what would that look like? I don't know. I mean, oftentimes when I think about this scene, I think about like the sun coming up over the horizon in the morning and light beginning to just flood the earth. Or I think about when I wake up in the morning and someone turns on the light and my eyes melt in the back of my head. And maybe that was sort of the case. Maybe it was just this, you know, and there's the hum of the lights. Uh, as the glory of God shines around them. But probably the way we ought to really think about what was happening is to think about the ways God's glory had been manifest in the past. To think about the way God revealed his glory to his people throughout the Old Testament. And if you think back to the Old Testament, oftentimes what happens is that God reveals his glory in this thing called the glory cloud, right? This storm cloud, think about it, that settled over Mount Sinai during the giving of the Ten Commandments. Or that glory cloud that filled the temple once the temple was completed to reveal God's presence with his people. Or if you think about Isaiah chapter 6, as Isaiah goes into the temple and he goes into the Holy of Holies and he's escorted into the presence of God. And as he goes into that presence, there are these angels and there are these seraphims and they're like fluttering around and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says that there was a cloud, there was, a, a, there was smoke that filled the entire temple with God's presence. Or you could think again about uh, the people of God as they were led out of slavery through the wilderness into the promised land, being led by this cloud by day. Or you can think about the glory of God that... uh, that was around the burning bush, but not consuming the bush, as God revealed his holiness and his glory and his presence to Moses. Or you think about the people of God who at night were not led by the cloud, but were led by this pillar, right, of fire that led them through the wilderness 
and into salvation. And in all of these instances, what we see is that God's glory is breaking in and capturing the attention of God's people in order to reveal his presence and to show and lead God's people towards salvation. And you can think about what was happening at Mount Sinai as his glory descended upon Sinai in order to say, I am with you. I am the one who has saved you. And this law that I'm giving you is the way for you to respond to the salvation that I have worked for you. Or if you think about the temple, right? The glory of the Lord fills the temple to say, I am present with you. I am your God. I am the place of mercy and justice. And I am the one who will work this in the world. If you think about Isaiah as he goes into the temple and it's filled with the glory of the Lord, again, God is saying, I am present with my people. And even though you are a people of unclean lips, what does he do? There's the coal taken off of the altar and sort of put like lip balm on, I guess, I don't know, but like it's like kind of put on Isaiah's lips in order to make him a man of clean lips, right? He's saying, I am present and I will deliver and I will heal and I will cleanse. Or if you think about the people of God who were being led, they were being led out of their slavery in Egypt and into the land of salvation by God himself. And something like that is what seems to be happening here. There's this, some version of this fiery cloud is probably lighting up the sky in the night. And the angels accompany the glory of God. And they begin to sing, glory to God in the highest. And why are they singing that there should be glory to God in the highest? One, because he is glorious and he is beautiful and he is lovely. But God is breaking in and doing something and they are saying glory to God in the highest because he is present and he is working salvation for his people. He is leading his people and he is working salvation for his people. And what God is doing in this moment is he is breaking into the ordinary existence of humanity in order to be with us and in order to bring us salvation. And notice the massive understatement in verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Right? I mean, could you imagine an angel, and then a choir of angels, and the glory of the Lord shining all around you, and heaven beginning to open up to earth? Of course they were afraid. Literally, the text says that they feared with mega fear. Right? That's it, because God is breaking into this world and breaking into our normal existence to bring salvation to a sinful, broken, hurting people. And then the angel says in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that there will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then all of a sudden this heavenly uh, angelic choir shows up and they're singing. I don't know if they're like moving like a choir with robes and everything, but they're singing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. I, I wish we had the recording to know kind of how this thing sounded, but surely it was huge, right? And then as they come to the flourish at the end, the choir just disappears, and the shepherds probably stood sort of dumbfounded in that moment, looking at one another, thinking, did you see what I think I, did you see this? Maybe, 
Maybe we should, verse 15, hey, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And so what they do is they then go down to Bethlehem, they go to the town, and they find Jesus. They look for this thing that the angels have said, and when they find it, what they find is something incredibly normal, right? They had seen nothing normal that night, and now they see this normal thing. They see a little baby who's wrapped up as babies are wrapped up. And swaddling cloths. They see this baby who's lying in the manger, just as this angel had said. And I think what is really important in this text is when they look in the manger, there was nothing abnormal about what they saw. Right? They saw a baby who had parents, who was wrapped up, who was sleeping and crying and feeding and being changed. They saw a baby that was loved by its mother. But what was abnormal was that this normal thing was the sign that the angels had sung about. And this sign that they are now seeing is the sign that proves that God is at work. That God had entered into creation, verse 11, to save it. That he had entered into creation, verse 14, to bring peace. And what was abnormal was the way that God decided to do this. That God would, in a sense, become ordinary. That he would enter into this world not as a powerful king, but as a little baby. That he would enter this world born not into a palace, but into a manger. And that this child, this little baby, was going to grow up and do normal things like eat and drink and learn to walk and talk and laugh and cry. That this baby was going to grow up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. That this baby was going to grow up and become an adult who would love and be loved. That this baby was going to grow up and be rejected and neglected and denied and betrayed and then he would die. You see, what was abnormal was that God had become a man, that he would become one of us in order to save us, that God would actually enter into the ordinary world in an ordinary way, and he would enter to save us, not, be, not by being different from us, but actually by becoming one of us. And that this little child would come and do normal things that humanity was supposed to do, all those normal things that we were supposed to do, like love God and love our neighbor, like caring for the hurting and the lonely and the poor and walking in the ways of God and revealing the love of God to the world. And what's fascinating to me is that as the shepherds see the baby, it tells us then in verse 22 that they returned. And where do you think they returned to? They went back to work. They returned to their normal, ordinary lives. They went back to the fields and they watched the sheep. And so a little point here in this passage, I think, is that the ordinary matters. That your ordinary life actually matters. That God enters into it and redeems it. That God enters into our normal lives and then he sends us back out into them. And I think that this is so important because so often as a people, we think our ordinary lives are bad. We think there's something wrong with an ordinary life, that somehow an ordinary life is insignificant or unimportant or not enough. But the fact of the matter is, most of us are living ordinary, normal lives. And the call of God is for us to live faithful, ordinary lives. Like, if you're married, the call is to live 
a faithful, ordinary marriage, to be faithful to one another, right? If you're not married, the call is to live an ordinary, celibate life. Like, if you have a job, the call is to, like, ordinarily, on a daily basis, get up and go to work, to do what your boss asks you to do, to change diapers, to wash dishes, to drive your children to swim practice, to study for exams, to hang out with friends, to show up at the places that you say you're going to be. Right? It's just doing ordinary things and being faithful in those things that God has given you to do. And that's one of the things that I actually love about Christmas, that God breaks into our ordinary lives and he actually fills them with meaning and purpose. One of the major points about Christmas is that Christmas makes the rest of your life make sense. That Christmas actually makes your ordinary life come alive. And what Advent is all about, it is waiting for the glory of God to break into the ordinary once again. And that's what God is doing in our, in our passage. He's breaking in. And the angel says in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so what the angel is doing here is he's explaining what God is doing. He's explaining that God is at work. That God is a God who hasn't abandoned us to the frustrations of the fall. That he hasn't abandoned us to the overwhelmingly underwhelming nature of our ordinary lives. That he hasn't abandoned us to our inabilities to love God and our inabilities to love our neighbor. He hasn't abandoned us to the curse of the fall. And this is really important. To understand Jesus entering into the world, you've got to remember the whole story of God. That in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and everything that God had made was good. It was very good, and everything was in a right relationship. Everything was ordered around God. And so humanity was in this right relationship with God. We're in this right relationship with ourselves, with others, and with the world around us. But when Adam sinned against God, all that was right, right became wrong. And frustration began to enter the world, and guilt and shame entered the world. And though the angels come proclaiming good news, it's good news because when we sinned against God, our lives became filled with bad news. Because God had told us if we disobey God, we would die. And that if we disobeyed God, we would be cast out of his presence. And our normal existence is an existence that was supposed to be, created to be, by God, filled with meaning and purpose and flourishing and joy. And that life, that ordinary life that we live, is now filled with frustration. Our lives become a burden. And God had told us, if we disobeyed, life would become a frustration your work would become burdensome. Beautiful, good things like giving birth would become painful. That the earth would begin to produce thorns and relationships would be filled with shame and hiding. That we would be a people who are running from God and cast out from God's presence. That there would be enmity or war between us and the devil. And that ultimately God's wrath had been stirred up against us. And all of that bad news begins to fill our daily, ordinary existence. And we feel the burden with each moment. We feel the burden of the curse. And Christmas tells us 
that God has not abandoned us to the curse. That God has re-entered this world in order to restore us to himself. And more particularly, it tells us that he has re-entered this world in order to, verse 11, be a savior. Now for most of us, when we hear this phrase, a savior, we immediately begin to think, Um, in religious terms like saving our souls or saving us from sin, which is totally true, that, that God is our Savior. That God entered the world as a man to be us, to die for our sins on the cross in order to satisfy the wrath of God, and therefore we now have peace with God. We are welcome before God. We are not guilty before God. We're righteous before God. But even more than that, in the Bible, a Savior, or in Greek, a soter, uh, is a hero, One who would enter and make everything right. One who would come into the world and protect us and provide for us. One who would bring peace and wholeness back into existence. And I think that this is important. Because our ordinary lives lack peace. We lack peace with God. We lack peace with one another. Lack peace with ourselves. And we lack peace with the world around us. And if we are honest. We are often filled with conflict, with sadness, with sorrow, with frustration, with disappointment, with confusion, with loneliness, and with shame. And that's normal for us. That's ordinary for us. It's just what we experience and what we need is a savior. We need someone to re-enter the world and restore peace and restore righteousness. We need someone to forgive us and restore us to God and restore the world to the way it's supposed to be. And what the Bible tells us is that the soter, the Savior, will come and bring peace. In Greek, the word for peace is arene, and in Hebrew, it is shalom. And these words evoke this fullness and this wholeness. Cornelius Planning says it this way, in the Bible... Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It is a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. It is the way things ought to be. Our Savior has come to make things the way they are always intended to be. And this is why one of our favorite Christmas carols every year is Joy to the World. And we love the verse, when he comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Because the curse has impacted every area of our lives. And this is what the angelic choir is singing about. That God has broken into the world in order to bring peace. To bring a full salvation back into the world. To bring peace to a world that does not know peace. And that salvation has begun. That salvation began when Jesus entered the world. And the child in the manger was God's sign that he was working our salvation. And that baby then grew up, and that baby then died for our sins. And that baby, through his death, reconciled the world to himself. And so now, as a church, we, like the shepherds, go about our ordinary lives, glorifying and praising God, awaiting the full salvation that God has promised through the birth of Jesus. And now it is Jesus 
that begins to shape and orient and give meaning to our ordinary existence. When so often what gives meaning or what shapes our lives is actually our suffering and our brokenness and our sin. And when Jesus has entered in, because of who he is and what he has done, he begins to shape us back to God, back to the way things are supposed to be, giving meaning to our lives. And by his spirit that was poured out for us on Pentecost, what he does is then he pushes out the curse. He's pushing the curse out from you. And he's pushing the curse away from you until one day he will come again. And he will come not as a child, but he will come as the warrior king, as described in the book of Revelation, the soter, the savior, the one who will cast out all of his enemies and all of your enemies, and the one who will bring peace to his people so that the ordinary might be once again filled with his glory. Let's pray.